So welcome to this time of worship. And this may seem kind of weird for you to be worshiping by video. Um, and it may be hard to do because um, when we watch video, it seems like all the attention is the action of what's happening on this side of the camera. And like we say often at Midtown, um, that's just not true. When we worship, the action is there with you because when we worship, we bring our full hearts to the Lord. And I want to encourage you to do that. In fact, I really want to encourage you to not be a spectator as uh, you participate in this, but you'd let your heart fully engage in the songs, let it engage in the preaching, and even in the benediction. So as I call us to worship, um, I'm turning to Psalm 139. So join me in prayer, and then also let the Word of God just flow over you. Lord, we pray for this time. We pray, Father, that your Holy Spirit would um, take the words that are said the songs that are sung, Lord, um, and you'd bring your presence into our home, that you bring it into the place where we're experiencing this. We pray and thank you, Father, that, that Jesus, you don't live in a building called a church, that we are your church, and that wherever we're watching this, you're with us. So be with us, Lord, we pray. For you have searched me, Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar, you discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, Lord, you know it completely. You hem me in behind and before. You lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wing of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. Now let's sing together as we remind ourselves of the promises of God. You are with me. What can separate us? You are for me. What can stand against us? Your love, it won't let go. I know it won't. Darkness, shadows have no power over me. Fear is empty. Shame has no authority. Your love, it won't let go. I know it won't. I know your thoughts, your plans for me are good. I know your hope, my future and my hope. Your promises never fail. Your promises never fail. You speak favor over me. Faith is breaking all impossibility. Your name has overcome, your name alone. And I know your thoughts, your plans for me are good. I know your hope, my future, and my hope. 
promises never fail. Your promises never fail. Your promises never fail. Your promises never fail. I am standing on every promise that you made. I will see it come to pass in your name. In your name, Jesus, I will trust every word I hear you say. I will see it come to pass in your name, in your name. Oh, I am standing on every promise that you made. I will see it come to pass in your name, in your name. Jesus, I will trust every word I hear you say. I will see it come to pass in your name, in your name. Oh, I am standing on every promise that you made. I will see it come to pass in your name, in your name. Jesus, I will trust every promises never fail your promises never fail let's pray Lord thank you for your promises to us Lord would you help us in this time as we are waiting as we are anxious as we are uncertain would you give us courage and remind us of the promises that we have all of your promises are yes and amen in Christ. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, everyone. Uh, welcome. My name is Elliot Cherry. I'm the lead pastor at uh, our 12 South location. Uh, it is certainly a strange reality to be interacting this way, uh, but welcome to our uh, sermon portion of the worship service. Today we're going to be continuing our series in the book of Luke. Uh, we come up to a, a teaching from Jesus in Luke chapter 12. And what Jesus is going to do is he's going to give a little teaching for a few verses, and then he's going to tell a parable that helps expound on the teaching. So he's going to teach something, and then he's going to tell a story that helps uh, drive home the teaching that he just gave. So if you'll turn uh, in your Bibles or get out your phones or uh, I believe the passage will be on the screen for you. We're going to be in Luke chapter 12, starting in verse 32. Do not be afraid, little flock, for your father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the poor. Provide purses for yourselves that will not wear out, 
a treasure in heaven that will never fail, where no thief comes near and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Be dressed ready for service and keep your lamps burning, like servants waiting for their master to return from a wedding banquet, so that when he comes and knocks, they can immediately open the door for him. It will be good for those servants whose master finds them watching when he comes. Truly, I tell you, he will dress himself to serve, will have them recline at the table, and will come and wait on them. It will be good for those servants whose master finds them ready, even if he comes in the middle of the night or toward daybreak. But understand this, if the owner of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have let his house be broken into. You also must be ready, because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect this. So, uh, like I said, uh, this little section of Luke, uh, Jesus gives a a teaching for a few verses, teaches uh, some different truths and realities, and then he immediately transitions into a parable, uh, a story. And it's easy sometimes to try to disconnect or to uh, try to find uh, maybe this this teaching isn't related to this parable, but it's actually the complete opposite. This, This teaching flows right into the parable that he tells, even though on the surface it may not seem like that's true. The teaching that Jesus gives uh, is centered around the last verse in the teaching. The, the last little line of his teaching section is what the whole passage is about. Teaching and parable is all centered on verse 34, where Jesus says this, For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Jesus essentially says uh, the opposite of what we've come to believe in the modern day. We believe that that's uh, that what Jesus said is actually uh, inverted. We we tend to believe that where my heart is, there my treasure will be. That if I want to find my treasure, I have to follow my heart, and so I have to dig down into my heart to then find what my treasure is. But Jesus. Uh, reverses that. He actually says that that, that something is a little off in that. Jesus says here that where your treasure is, there your heart will be. So, according to Jesus, if you want to know what your heart is all about, if you want to get to the center and the core of who you are, if you want to know what reality is going on inside of you, you don't start with your heart. You actually have to start with your treasure. Because where your treasure is, there your heart will be. Also, and that our hearts are always on a treasure quest. Our hearts are always craving something. Our hearts are always longing for something. Our hearts are always on a quest to find a treasure. And so Jesus says, if you want to get to the center of who you are, if you want to know who you truly are, start with the thing that you treasure and it will lead you to your heart. So if that's true, then maybe uh, we would be afraid of Jesus's next implied question. The question from Jesus is not, have you found your heart's treasure yet? Or has your heart found its treasure yet? The question is, do you know what your heart treasures? Because if you know what your heart treasures, then you're getting close to knowing what's going on inside of you. So it may be important, it may matter for us to think about what is it that our heart is treasuring? Do you know what your heart is treasuring? And it may even go a little deeper than that. It may be um, vital for all aspects of our life, for all of our relationships, for all of our time, for all of our future, for all of our present discontentment or present pain, 
for us to think about what is it that my heart treasures and could it be that the thing my heart treasures will have a massive impact on the rest of my life? Do you think it matters what object is at the end of your heart's treasure? See, because treasures always require that you give your life to it. Treasures always require that you sacrifice your life in order to get it. If you think of Gollum in Lord of the Rings, he's obsessed with his precious. He's obsessed with the treasure of his heart's desire. And it actually consumes him and it turns him into this weird frog monster thing that he can't even stay who he was in light of the treasure that his heart has obsessed over. And in the same way, Jesus is saying, our hearts will always treasure something, and the thing that our hearts treasure will always require that we give our entire lives to it. Our hearts treasure will always require that we sacrifice our lives for it. Our treasures will consume our hearts just like Gollum. But one thing here that Jesus wants to show us is that there actually is one in particular treasure that our hearts could go after. There is one treasure that when we obsess over it, it wouldn't destroy us, but it would liberate us. There actually is a treasure, Jesus would say, that would actually make our hearts beautiful and not make us monsters. That if our hearts were made to treasure and our hearts will treasure something, there is a treasure that your heart was made for. And so Jesus tells this little parable in order to explain, in order to dive deeper into um, leading the people of his kingdom into understanding how vital it is, what the treasure of their heart is. And he tells this little story, this little parable. And each step of this parable is an example of what it means to have our heart's affections properly ordered and properly placed on the treasure it was made for. The parable he tells is about this master, this master who's away from his house at a wedding banquet. And the master has left his estate, he has left his house in the care and in the oversight of some servants. And the master is returning back to the house and the teaching of the parable gets into how the servants are waiting and how the servants are interacting while they are waiting for their master to return. So we have to look at a few things. This parable is inviting us to dive into a couple things. The first is, and this is, this is maybe uh, obvious, but it needs to be stated, the parable is teaching that the master will return. And in the parable, Jesus is the master. Jesus is the one who's returning. And so we have to pause for a second and at least acknowledge that Jesus is saying he's coming back. One of the tenets of the Christian faith is not only that Jesus has come once already, we celebrate that at Christmas, not only did he resurrect, that we celebrate that at Easter, but that he ascended to the right hand of the Father and he's seated at the throne right now and one day he will return and our King Jesus is coming back. It's been a tenet of the Christian faith for thousands of years. It's in all of our historical creeds. We believe that one day Jesus will return. And so there's a lot of vague theology that is surrounding our, our modern day with the idea of what Christians believe about Jesus' return. Like, are we talking about the rapture? And what does that mean? And isn't there an antichrist? And what is, certainly this church, you know, we're not crazy enough to believe all that stuff in Revelation, right? Like that was somebody who was tripped out and had some crazy visions. Like we don't actually believe all of that stuff about the return of Jesus, right? 
There's certainly, um, I want to be careful, there's certainly plenty that the Bible doesn't say about the return of Jesus, but there also is a lot that it does say. And that's important for us to understand this parable, what the Bible says about the return of King Jesus. The Bible is adamantly clear. Jesus, while no one knows the day or the hour, Jesus is coming back. And when Jesus returns, he will bring the fullness of his kingdom with him. King Jesus will return with his kingdom, and he will not come to destroy the world. He will come to restore the world. The picture in Revelation chapter 21 of the return of King Jesus is that he will return to a wedding banquet. Well, he will marry his bride, the church, and he will bring with him at the wedding feast with his kingdom, he will bring with him the promises of no more sadness, no more sickness, no more tears, no more divorce, no more cancer, no more viruses, no more sorrowful things. In fact, everything that has ever been sad will work in reverse and will actually turn into joy, John 16 tells us. The master is returning, and one day King Jesus will bring the full consummation of his kingdom, and his people will be with him in his kingdom, and we will reign forever in a world with no sorrow, the way that 1 Corinthians 15 talks about that day is that it says that King Jesus is, has defeated all of his enemies by the power of his death and resurrection. And one day, the final enemy will be defeated when he returns, and the final enemy to be defeated will be death itself. Paul said that way before it was on Harry Potter's parents' gravestone, that the last enemy to be defeated will be death itself. That's the promise of the returning master. That's the promise of the returning king, that one day death and all of his friends, like Coldplay sings about, will be eradicated. Death will be no more. Sadness will be no more. And all of the sad things will turn into joyful things. And there will be no more things that will threaten our joy, and we will live in eternal bliss in this newly restored creation with our King Jesus. The king is coming back with his kingdom, and in the king's kingdom, all is well. And that's the point of this little parable at first, is Jesus is saying, do you know the master is coming back, and do you know that your heart was made to treasure that day? Do you know the treasure that your heart, that my heart was made for, the thing that I was meant to obsess over, literally like Gollum, the thing that I was literally made to set all of my heart's attention on and to treasure is the return of my master, the king. Because when my king brings his kingdom, all will be made well. The master, the king, is bringing his kingdom back. So that's the first part. The master's coming back. And do you know that the master's return is to be your heart's treasure. So then he gives, in this little parable, not only the reality that the master is coming back, but he also tells us in there the way that the servants are acting and interacting and waiting on the master's return. The way that they do that matters because the conduct of the servants, the way that they are acting and interacting and, and ordering their lives will help them keep the return of the master, their heart's primary treasure. The way that they are waiting, the way that they are, they are interacting will help them keep his return as their heart's primary treasure. So look again with me at verse 35 through 37. This is where he's, I want you to hear how he talks about the, the, the servants who are waiting. 
He says, be dressed and ready for service and keep your lamps burning like servants waiting for their master to return from a wedding banquet so that when he comes and knocks, they can immediately open the door for him. It will be good for those servants whose master finds them watching when he comes. Three things he says for the servants. Three things he says that all work together, but three things, three different commands he gives for the way that the servants are to be at the house. They are to stay dressed and be ready. They are to stay waiting for the master and they are to stay watching for the master. Stay dressed and be ready with your lamps lit so that you can see the master when he comes back. Stay waiting for him with hopeful anticipation because you know that when the master returns, it will be the greatest thing that's ever happened. And then he says, stay watchful because you don't know when it's gonna happen and stay humble in your watchfulness. Stay humble that you don't know the day or the hour and don't get prideful in thinking that you know and so it doesn't really matter how you're interacting. I think about my son, Winton who's five, who uh, it has become my heart's delight how much he's obsessed with basketball. Basketball is his current um, heart's treasure, and I love him for it. Um, But almost every day when I am pulling into my driveway, my son, Winton, is looking through the curtains on the front window waiting for me to get home. And I can't even get to the front door before he's already out the door with his basketball wanting to shoot and play with me in the driveway that there's this hopeful anticipation for him. He's watching, he's waiting, he's ready. He can't wait for his dad to get home so that I can destroy him in one-on-one. Kidding. Um, But there's there's this hopeful anticipation because just like my son demonstrates, the way that we wait for something displays how we feel about the thing that we're waiting on. The way that we're interacting while we're waiting for something to happen shows how we feel about the thing that we're waiting on. Another basketball illustration would be that in the recent weeks, the Last Dance documentary that's come on ESPN, the last season of Michael Jordan with the Bulls, the 97-98 season, ESPN was promoing this documentary, this 10-part documentary, since Christmas. And for anybody that was a child of the 90s or even child of the 80s that that grew up watching Michael Jordan and the Bulls um, has been waiting for this documentary to air. And I can't tell you how often I was checking the air dates and the show times and the hopeful anticipation, the way I was texting about it and talking about it and excited about it. Why was I so hopefully waiting? Why was I so anxiously, excitedly waiting for that thing to air? It's because I loved it. It's because I was excited about the experience of it. I was excited about the nostalgia of it. I was excited about learning more about this thing that I already loved. I was excited about diving into the remembering of the joy of watching Michael Jordan and the Bulls. And all that that was telling me was in the season of waiting for it, how I was waiting for it would have told everyone watching how I felt about the thing I was waiting on. Because how we wait and how watchful we are and how hopeful we are and how patient we are with the thing that we're waiting on says something about the thing that we're waiting on. Just like my son watching through the window for me to return. That's what Jesus is saying here. Do you know that your master, your king is returning? Do you know that he's coming back? Are you hopeful about that day? Are you apathetic about that day? Are you angry or afraid about that day? 
Or do you know that on that day, all of your heart's desire will be satisfied, that longing will go away? Do you know that on that day, all of your sadness will turn into joy? Do you know that on that day, all of your scars will turn into beauty? Do you know that on that day, all of your ashes will be turned into a beautiful flame of life? The king is coming back with his kingdom and the king's return is our heart's greatest treasure. If you believe that about his return, how do you think that would cause you to wait for him? Do you think it would make you patient while you wait? Do you think it would make you, do you think it would make us hopeful while we wait? Do you think it would stop us from scurrying around and trying to demand that this life be something that it was never meant to be? Do you think we would loosen our death grip on all the other treasures that our hearts go after? Do you think that if I believe that about my master's return, it would actually affect my present? That it wouldn't be this escapism, it wouldn't be this religious numbing that that Christians are accused of, that it wouldn't be a pie in the sky dancing on clouds, which doesn't even sound fun anyway, playing harps for all of eternity. That sounds more like hell than it does like heaven anyway. And so do you think it would be possible that if I actually believed what the Bible says about the master's return, it would actually give me power in the present to wait and watch and hope differently for that day. Jesus is trying to lead us deeper into our own hearts. He's trying to show us that what we are, uh, what our hearts are treasured on, what our hearts have craved, what our hearts are meant to feast on and obsess over is the return of our master. We were made to treasure the king and his kingdom. See, because Jesus knows, and he actually says this in the, in the teaching part, Jesus knows that all of our other treasures will one day waste away. See, because here and now, we can set our heart's treasure on money or possessions or power or fame or influence. We can set our heart's treasure on so many things and our hearts were made to treasure. Our hearts will treasure something. And Jesus is saying, all the other things that your heart's treasure will be destroyed. There's one thing, there's one treasure that you can set your heart on that won't be destroyed. He says it right there in verse 33. He says, you have a treasure in heaven that will never fail where no thief comes near and no moth can destroy. See, all my other treasures will one day be lost except for one. All my other treasures will one day perish except for one. All my other heart's treasures will one day disintegrate except for one. And Jesus is saying, hey, I'm trying to reorder your heart's affection by showing you what your heart was made to treasure because where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And there's only one treasure that won't perish. And Jesus gets really practical in this whole section while he's saying, hey, if you know this about the master's return, if you know what you're waiting on, it will change how you wait. You will become, we will become radically generous people. That's what he says, sell your possessions because you don't need all these other treasures. You've set your heart's affection like a death grip on all these other treasures. You don't need them, give them all away. It will make us servants. That's what he's saying later on in, in the next little section. He says, hey, while you're waiting, serve each other. You don't need to be crawling all over each other for more power and more influence because all those things are gonna, are gonna rot away one day anyway. 
You can actually spend your time here as radically generous people. You can actually be so bold as to be radical lovers of neighbor and of, of, of the people in your world if you know what will happen when your master returns. The people of Jesus' kingdom don't fix their heart's treasure on things that can be destroyed. And Jesus is saying, you have an indestructible treasure that's coming. You have a treasure that one day that thief cannot take away and moth cannot destroy. And if you know that, you will be radically different in the meantime. You will wait with hopeful anticipation and you will be radical givers. You will be radical lovers as you wait for the king who's coming back with his kingdom. So that's how Jesus wants to show us about our heart's treasure, what our hearts were made to treasure, that our hearts were made to treasure the master, the king who's coming back with his kingdom. But there's one last thing here. It's, it's almost buried like a treasure in this, in this little section. I want to look at, as we close very briefly, what does this passage show us about the master? It's shown us that we were made to treasure the master's return, and it's shown us how we are to wait for the master's return. But what does the passage show us about the master himself? Verse 32, the opening line of this little section of teaching, Jesus says, do not be afraid, little flock, for your father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. Now that opening line, there's a lot there, but in one little line, there there are three descriptors, three titles of Jesus himself. He says, don't be afraid, little flock, because he's a shepherd. For your father, because he's a good father, is pleased to give you his kingdom. He's a king. He's a good father, he's a great shepherd, and he's a generous king. So those three titles are also the titles of the master that's returning. The great shepherd, the good father, and the generous king. That's in the opening line. And so look, we're taking that understanding, those titles given to the master, and now I wanna see what this little parable tells us about the master. Because if we've been talking this whole time about what our hearts were made to treasure and that all of our hearts are always treasuring something. All of our hearts are always looking to something to give our hearts affection to and to long after and to crave. If we can truly get to know our hearts by getting to know what our treasure is, I wanna flip that question away from us and back onto Jesus. Does this parable tell us anything about what Jesus treasures? Does this parable tell us anything about what the shepherd, the father, the king, the master treasures? Look with me again at verse 37 and 38. It says, It will be good for those servants whose master finds them watching when he comes. Truly, truly I tell you, he will dress himself to serve. He will have them recline at the table and will come and wait on them. It will be good for those whose servants whose master finds them ready, even if he comes in the middle of the night or towards daybreak. So in this story, the master, who's at a wedding feast, who's at a party, returns in the middle of the night. Why does the master leave the party he was at to come back home in the middle of the night? You don't leave parties in the middle of the night, especially uh, ancient Near East wedding feasts. They lasted for weeks. You don't leave those in the middle of the night. Why does the master leave that party that he was at in the middle of the night to come back home? The parable tells us, He comes back home to throw a party for his servants. That he will come back from the party he was at 
so that he can seat his servants and serve them at a feast that he will prepare for them. Every single commentator, every single scholar that I read on this passage agrees. That idea of a master leaving a party in the middle of the night to come home to throw a party for his servants is absolutely unheard of. It's outlandish. That did not happen in the ancient Near East. Masters don't serve servants. Masters don't throw parties for servants. Masters don't leave the party that they're at to come home and throw a party for their servants. But the master in this parable, we're told, isn't coming back to be served, but when he comes back, he will serve. The master in this parable isn't coming back to take from his servants. He's coming back to lavish on his servants. The master in this parable isn't coming back to get a feast. He's coming back to give a feast. The master in this parable isn't coming to collect gifts. He's coming to dispense gifts to his servants. The master in this parable left his party because he'd rather be with his servants and throw them one. Let me put it another way. The master in this parable is the master who treasures his servants. Certainly in this parable, there is the command for the servants to treasure the master and the master's return because it's what the servants were made to treasure. Certainly in this parable, there is the command to wait and to watch and to be hopeful and patient and generous while we wait. But buried in this little section, buried in this little parable is the gold of the gospel of Jesus. You and I are not the only ones with a treasure. Jesus has a treasure too. Not only is Jesus the treasure our hearts were made for, not only is Jesus the only treasure that will never perish, Jesus is a treasure that actually treasures us. Yes, treasures will require that you give your life to them, but Jesus is the only treasure who came to give his life for you. And that's what turns this whole kingdom upside down. That's what turns this whole story on its head is that Jesus is saying, yes, I'm trying to teach your heart to set your treasure, set your heart's affection on my return, but don't you know that I'm coming back for you because I treasure you? See, the danger of asking the question about what our hearts desire It gets really scary because not only do we have to look at the things that our hearts have set our affection on and our hearts have treasured, we also are are greeted by the demons in our own minds and hearts that are always taunting us that we know deep down one day our treasures will disappear. We know the things we love won't last forever. We know, just like Jesus says, that there really isn't any treasure that isn't untouchable that moth and thief will destroy the things that I've set my heart's affection on. Craving is haunted by losing, James K. Smith says. And what love truly hopes for is to find a beloved that could never be lost. Church, your returning master treasures you. And when he returns to us, he will seat us at his table and he will serve us. This is your beloved who will never perish. This is your beloved who could never be lost. May our master, may our king, may our shepherd, may our father, may he find us watchful and waiting. May he find us 
standing at the door, looking through the window when he returns. Let's pray. Jesus, um, you have made us prisoners of hope, and you have uh, told us um, to set our hearts affection on the only treasure that could never be taken from us, to set our, our treasure in heaven where you are. And one day, King Jesus, when you return and you seat us at the table and you kneel down and you serve us and you wipe away our tears, we will dance and we will laugh and we will feast with you. In this crazy uh, quarantine time, with all the unknowns, and with all the treasures that are being ripped from our hands, would you, give us, uh, would you give us the power, give us the faith to set our heart's affection on your return, we pray. We ask all this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Let's sing again together as we proclaim and put our hope and that Jesus is coming again for us. You are the faithful one. 
Let's read this passage together from Psalm 130. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord, my soul waits. And in his word I hope, my soul waits for the Lord more than watchman for the morning, more than watchman for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption, and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. face in every sunrise the colors of the morning are inside your eyes the world awakens in the light of the day I look up to the sky and say you're beautiful
everybody uh, I'm gonna close out our time together and uh, and benedict us and send us out which uh, probably feels a little ironic because uh, we're already out uh, but this is a wonderful time for us to practice uh, as the church what we say often that uh, you don't go to church uh, that we are the church and so as those um, who are waiting uh, for the master's return um, it's really our hope and, and our prayer that that waiting uh, isn't just a passive time, but it's an active time, and that uh, our hearts and our hands would be busy with the things uh, that the Master loves and the Master values, because that's, that's who we are. We are servants of Him, servants of the King who is returning. Um, so I'm going to close this uh, with this passage uh, from Hebrews, receive this benediction from the Word. May the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, equip you with everything good for doing his will. And he may work in us what is pleasing to him through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Go in peace.